I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're not talking about much since there was no SCOTUS news. Just kidding. We're talking about everything that happened this week, and there was a lot. Before we get into the biggest SCOTUS headline of the week, we'll recap the major decisions from the past week. And we're joined by Kimberly Robinson of Bloomberg Law. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Great to be on. So first up, the court decided the long-awaited years-in-the-making Janus case. This is the case challenging compelled agency fees for public employees who declined to join their local union. Mark Janus is an Illinois state employee, and he opted out of joining the union, but then he discovered he still had to pay what's called an agency fee to cover the cost of collective bargaining. Now that, for him, amounted to 78% of a full union member's fees. Mr. Janice didn't want anything to do with the union uh, in his state, and it was one that had made large political donations to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, among other political causes. Now, under a 1977 decision, Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, the Supreme Court had previously ruled that unions could collect these fees from non-members to cover their, quote, fair share of collective bargaining costs. The theory was that the government had a compelling interest in labor peace for its employees and also that this prevented free riders from benefiting from union activities without paying a fair share. Now, this uh, this 1977 decision had been on shaky ground since at least 2012, and it had been called into question in a line of cases since. Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion this week, which is 5-4, uh, overruling a boot and holding that compelled agency fees violate the First Amendment free speech and associational rights of public employees. So, Kimberly, were you surprised by the ruling? <laughs> um, no, I was not surprised by the ruling. As it took longer and longer for the ruling to come down, we started to hear some speculation that uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch may be considering flipping sides, but I don't think anybody really thought that was anything other than wishful thinking on the part of people who support uh, these agency fees. I think all along it was expected that this would come down to a 5-4 decision. And there was basically an identical challenge the year that Justice Scalia passed away, and that, uh, of course, was decided 4-4, and it, it uh, it, it was quickly the issue was brought back up to the court once there were nine members uh, in in this case that they decided this week. So do you think this is going to have a big impact on unions? Well, certainly that's up for debate. There are a number of states that do not allow these kinds of agency fees, and we do see unions um, that are active in those states. But there is probably going to be a down a decline in their funding. Um, that's something that the majority said was actually a good thing because it would make unions fight harder for their members. Um, but I think uh, the unions themselves don't see it as quite a good thing. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. And I guess the other big question is whether or not um, this prohibition in the public union sector will also bleed over into private unions. Um, you know, people who brought this challenge say that's not the case, that there are different um, considerations in the the public arena. But, uh, you know, I think that's something we'll have to wait and see as the if any challenges are brought along those lines. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. Next up, the court also decided the travel ban in Trump v. Hawaii. The chief justice had the opinion for the court and he was joined by Kennedy, Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch. And they held that the president lawfully exercised the broad discretion granted to him by the Immigration and Nationality Act to suspend the entry of aliens from certain countries. So the president's proclamation sought to improve vetting procedures for foreign nationals traveling to the U.S. by identifying ongoing deficiencies in the information needed to assess whether they presented a national security threat. 
and entry was restricted from eight nations, but only after the Department of Homeland Security, in consultation with the State Department, developed an information and risk assessment baseline that was applied to all foreign governments. And this identified those with deficient information sharing practices. The court said that this proclamation falls well within the statute's comprehensive delegation of authority to the president, and it wrote that the president must find the entry of aliens to be detrimental to the interests of the United States, and the court said that there's no question he's fulfilled that requirement here. They also said, in fact, the proclamation is more detailed than any order by previous presidents issued pursuant to the statute. Now, as to the Establishment Clause claim, the court wrote that the proclamation is expressly premised on legitimate purposes and says nothing about religion. The entry restrictions are limited to countries that were previously designated by Congress or prior administrations as posing national security threats. And it also reflected um, a worldwide review process undertaken by multiple cabinet officials and their agencies. And the court wrote that the court can't substitute its own assessment for the executive's predictive judgments on such matters. Justice Kennedy wrote a concurrence affirming the necessity that officials adhere to First Amendment guarantees and mandates in all their actions. Justice Thomas also concurred, writing separately to note skepticism over whether district courts have the authority to enter universal injunctions, though I think I prefer Gorsuch's term from the oral argument, which was cosmic injunctions. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Justice Breyer dissented, joined by Justice Kagan, writing that the president's anti-religious bias is a sufficient basis to set the proclamation aside, but that more evidence is required. And Sotomayor also wrote a separate dissent joined by Justice Ginsburg, arguing that a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. So, Kimberly, did you expect that this is how the court was going to rule? I think after the administration revised its ban and conducted its review, it seemed like the travel ban was on much surer footing. And so the outcome itself didn't surprise me. Um, There were a few things about the opinion and about the vote breakdown that did surprise me. I wondered if Justices Kagan and Breyer might also vote to uphold the ban. Um, Of course, that's not what we saw happen. I thought it was really interesting that the dissenters broke along two different lines with uh, Kagan joining Breyer's dissent and uh, Justice Ginsburg joining Justice Sotomayor's dissent. I think that's in line with a lot of um, what we've been seeing from that those two justices, Breyer and Kagan, this term kind of having a more moderate view. Um, but I thought it was interesting that none of them I crossed over to join both dissents. Um, and I was also surprised by the majority's willingness to consider, or at least on its face, consider the president's statements. They did not accept the Solicitor General's argument that they should totally ignore them, but they did look at them um, to say, on balance, they thought that the national security rationale that was put forward uh, wasn't outweighed by um, the president's statements. So I wasn't I wasn't predicting that the majority would actually consider the president's statements. What did you make of Justice Kennedy's concurrence? Do you think it was just a a last-ditch effort to lecture the president? Well, you know, I think Justice Kennedy has a lot of respect for President Trump. I mean, when we see him interacting with him, they seem to get along pretty well. Um, So I'm not sure it was chiding him um, specifically, but I do think he cares deeply about uh, civility and, um, you know, has some concerns about our public discourse. And this was kind of a way for him to um, fan uh, those ideas out. 
Well, next up, the court also decided NIFLA versus Becerra. This is the California Pregnancy Center's case. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion for five members of the court, holding that California likely violated the First Amendment when it tried to force pro-life pregnancy centers to post a notice in their clinics about the state's free abortion services. It also called a second regulation an unduly burdensome, and this one would require centers that aren't licensed medical facilities to include a 29-word disclaimer in up to 13 languages and in the same font size as the body of their ad. Uh, these were centers that these are centers that provide free baby supplies and parenting classes, among those other things. So they're not licensed to do medical things, which it makes sense to have some sort of disclaimer. But even at the oral argument, Justice Ginsburg said, you know, 13 languages, that seems un you know, that seems burdensome. But she did not join the majority opinion. So now the case goes back to the Ninth Circuit because this was at a very early stage of the case. This was a pre-enforcement challenge. So one thing I, I found interesting, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, Kimberly, is that Thomas went out of his way to explain that uh, this idea that their so-called professional speech deserves less protection under the First Amendment. He said that that's basically bogus. Uh, he explained that this would run the inherent risk that government seeks not to advance a legitimate regulatory goal, but to suppress unpopular ideas. So that should put a stop to uh, the legal theory uh, that, that's been used to run fortune tellers, tour guides, advice columnists, and other so-called professionals with unlicensed speech out of business. So uh, what did you think about that angle of the case? Well, I thought it was interesting that the majority did not not go that far. I think that, um, you know, it's it's something that hasn't completely gone away yet. And I think we're going to see it back up at the court again. Um, I think there are some justices who definitely think that professional speech can be regulated, but that it's just really hard to draw the line. And they just bleed so much together that this wasn't the, the case to decide it in when they could do it along other lines. And so what do you think will happen now that it goes back to the Ninth Circuit? Well, I mean, it is a preliminary uh, determination, and there is um, some discussion about a lack of evidence, but uh, the Supreme Court didn't seem to be um, sugarcoating its analysis. It seems like at least the way that California is applying the law right now will probably um, not be able to stand, whether or not that's the district court or the Ninth Circuit that does it or ultimately the Supreme Court that does it again. Just briefly, I'll mention the Texas redistricting case, Abbott versus Perez. This case had been going on since 2011 when the Texas legislature drew up new congressional and state district lines. And the lower court in this case held that the Texas legislature had intentionally discriminated against African-American and Hispanic voters when it drew its map. Um, but the court upheld all but one of those districts that had been challenged. Two other cases will briefly note the water war between Florida and Georgia. This is a dispute between the two states, and it's an original action at the Supreme Court. Justice Breyer wrote for a 5-4 majority, finding that the special master in the case applied too strict a standard in reviewing Florida's arguments about Georgia's allegedly inequitable use of interstate waters. So that case will continue. I was surprised it took them so long to to reach reach the issue. It was argued, I think, in January, and and uh, there was a, uh, a Thomas dissent, which I, I admit I haven't had a chance to read yet. But anyway, not not one that I expected would, would produce fireworks the way that it did. And then finally, the court decided the American Express case. This was a 5-4 decision by Thomas. Um, again, the court ruled that uh, anti-steering provisions in contracts between American Express and merchants do not violate federal antitrust laws. So Amex employs a, a business model that provides 
provides greater rewards to cardholders than other credit card companies, but it also charges higher fees to merchants. So it places what are called anti-steering provisions in its contracts with merchants to prevent them from dissuading cardholders from using their Amex card. So the U.S. and several states uh, sued Amex, claiming that this violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, but the court found that uh, they had not carried their initial burden of proving that the anti-steering provisions had an anti-competitive effect in this single market. I was at the court on Monday when they announced this opinion, and after Justice Thomas read the majority, the Supreme Court marshal gaveled gaveled them out uh, mistakenly, and everyone was standing up, and then um, we had to like sit back down immediately because <laughs> Breyer had to read his dissent, and he was so animated, and he's like, antitrust is so important. Of course. And yeah, he was very professorial- in, in reading his dissent. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so moving to the orders list, there were a lot of grants this week, including three cases where friend of the podcast, Canon Shan McGann, represents one of the parties. So it's safe to say he's going to have a busy summer and fall. Uh, the court also uh, GVR'd the Arlene's Flowers case. This is the Washington State florist, similar to the Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, so it's going back to the state's Supreme Court to, to take another look at it. But it may return to the court in the future. The court also denied the two Establishment Clause cases that we've previously talked about, uh, Bormuth versus Jackson and Rowan County versus Lund, where there was a circuit split about legislative prayer. And in Rowan County, Thomas dissented from denial of cert, joined by Justice Gorsuch, writing that the court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence is in disarray, and they, they would have granted the case. Thomas also wrote that the Fourth Circuit's approach was both unfaithful to the Supreme Court precedent and ahistorical. Now, these cases had been rescheduled well over a dozen times, uh, but not relisted. Did the clerk just misidentify them, or what do you think was going on, Kimberly? Well, we've actually seen a number of cases, not just these, but a number of cases that were resolved um, summarily just this morning um, that had been relisted 12 13, 14, 15 times. Um, So it seems like uh, maybe the court was getting a little behind on its work um, and was pushing these um, to the back burner a little bit. But of course, it's just speculation. We can't know. Um, Although it's not speculation that the court has been um, historically slow in getting out um, its work this term. Uh, It started off as one of the slowest terms um, in more than 100 years. So I think the speculation may be, may be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, next up, we're going to talk about the retirement that is the talk of the town. Tiffany Bates is hanging up her headphones and retiring from SCOTUS 101. She's headed down south to the Fifth Circuit for a clerkship. We will miss her, and we hope that she might come back to SCOTUS 101 to visit us in the future. Well, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to do this podcast with Elizabeth, and I'm very grateful for all our wonderful listeners, and I really hope to be back someday. Okay, but now on to the other retirement. (laughs) Justice Anthony Kennedy dropped a bomb yesterday, not when he was at the court in the morning, uh, which I I wasn't at the court, but uh, there were colleagues who were there who said, uh, you know, Mrs. Kennedy was in attendance for the reading of the opinions, and there appeared to be Kennedy grandchildren who were there. And then at the end, Chief Justice Roberts leaned forward and said that, you know, he he was going to announce some retirements, and there was a gasp in, in the courtroom, but it just turned out to be three employees of the court. And then in the afternoon, the news broke that that Justice Kennedy had notified President Trump of his intent to retire. So, Kimberly, what are your initial reactions? Well, I mean, 
there'd been a lot of speculation that Justice Kennedy or maybe even Justice Thomas was going to retire uh, so that a Republican could appoint their successor. Um, I think that was all, again, just speculation. And I don't even think Justice Kennedy really knew until recently um, whether or not he was going to retire. Um, But it will be an interesting battle. I mean, of course, uh, the confirmation over Neil Gorsuch was very uh, bitter, uh, but I can't imagine what this one's going to be like, given that it's, uh, you know, we're not replacing a conservative justice with another conservative justice. We're replacing, you know, a swing justice with a conservative justice. Yeah, although this term, it does seem that Justice Kennedy voted with the conservative bloc in, in I think, all of the what we consider important, important <laughs> cases. Well, that's right. There were actually 18 times that the Supreme Court broke down five to four this term. And in none of those did Kennedy side with the liberals. That, that's really something. Yeah. And I wonder if um, what effect like serving with his former clerk, Justice Gorsuch, um, had on him, especially when you when you read like his his Chevron concurrence the other day. I can just, you know, picture them yeah. you know, after work being like, oh, Gorsuch and saying this Chevron, you know, deal. It's it's really bad. And Kennedy being like, yeah, oh, actually, I see that. Now. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Thanks, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think it's it's no surprise to say that Justice Kennedy has had a complicated relationship with conservatives. Uh, but of course, he has sided with the conservative bloc in a number of important areas, including free speech, religious liberty, voting rights, equal protection, and and another. Uh, and and many other areas. So uh, most of all, we we certainly thank him for giving President Trump a second opportunity to to place another great justice on the Supreme Court. We'll call it Gorsuch 2.0. So I would love to get your predictions, Kimberly, of the the short list that's not so short. It's 25 people now. Who do you think are are rising to the top of the list? Well, what we've been hearing so far is um, that Brett Kavanaugh is really uh, the the top person, and of course, this is on the judge that sits here um, in Washington on the federal circuit and the D.C. circuit. But I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but President Trump does not like to be predictable, so I think <laughs> the field is pretty wide open. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I think anyone on uh, the twenty five list would really be. Um, pretty nice for conservatives. I think I just saw earlier today, Josh Blackman said that you could throw a dart at any one of these and he would be happy with them. Um, (laughs) So uh, even though I think Kavanaugh right now is at the top of the list, I I wouldn't be surprised if that changes quite a bit um, as the process goes on. Yeah. And it also seems like Trump is a little skeptical of, of, you know, D.C., the D.C., you know, people. Inside Um, the Beltway. Yeah. Yeah. The swamp. Yeah. Well, and he will affect his decision. Yeah, he wasn't included on the first two rounds of the mm-hmm. list. He was actually added uh, just last fall. Um, and so I don't know if that works in his favor and that, you know, it shows that, you know, he's kind of top of mind for President Trump or if it works against him to show that, you know, he hasn't really been, been on the list for very long. But I guess we'll see pretty soon. It was only two weeks after he took uh, office that he nominated Neil Gorsuch. So I imagine we'll we'll get word sometime pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, who's your who's your prediction? Well, I mean, Bill Pryor forever and always. Um, he's on the list. He was in the top, you know, the top few who were considered last time around. But I, I think Kimberly's right that that we're hearing a lot of talk about Brett Kavanaugh, and you know, we're hearing a lot about Amul Thapar, who's a new judge on the Sixth Circuit. And but he had served a decade before. He, he on had the district court. He served on the district court uh, in in Kentucky. And uh, he has close ties to uh, a certain individual from Kentucky, Leader McConnell. (laughs) That's true. 
Well, my dream justice would be Amy Barrett, because I think Amy, the dogma lives loudly Barrett, uh, or justice, the dogma lives loudly Barrett, has a very nice ring to it. But if I had to place a bet right now, I think it would be a mool the par. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on it and we'll know soon enough. I, I think the president and Leader McConnell would ideally like to get this person confirmed to be there in time for uh, October 1st uh, to hit the ground running for the next Supreme Court term. So that's a quick turnaround, but I think it's within within the realm of possibility if you look at the last several nominations, uh, confirmation processes they've, they've taken about between 10 and 14 weeks. And if we see a nomination in, you know, let's say mid-July, that, that would that would leave about enough time. It, it would be fast, but it would leave plenty of time to to get that done. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think the procedures are on um, McConnell's side, and I think he's going to do anything he can to make sure that it happens, uh, if not before October, definitely before November. Well, we have one final question. This is unrelated to Justice Kennedy, um, although perhaps he's your answer. This is our justice dinner date, which which is what you called it, our justice dinner date question, which I, I love the way you phrase that. So if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I was thinking about this all night last night when I should be getting a nice bit of sleep, um, <laughs> given what's coming up. But I think I landed on justice story. Oh, um, good choice. Lives in such an interesting time and had such a unique view um, and was himself so influential, but in, you know, a really discreet kind of way. Also, I went to an event at the Smithsonian a few years ago with Justice uh, Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor, and it was about Supreme Court food. And they talked about how the Supreme Court justices at that time would get together and have these really kind of wild um lunches, although I'm not sure that they were eating a lot as opposed to just drinking a lot. And it would be great to pick his brain about about those lunches. Yeah, that would be incredible. I'm sure they were, you know, maybe they were having martinis if that was popular back then. Or John Marshall's uh, punch. Yeah, John Marshall's punch. the new Supreme Court cookbook. Well, I was thinking, you know, there are olives in martinis, so that's food. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia Retirement Edition. And Kimberly and Tiffany are, are both in the hot seat, in the hot seats today. Are you ladies ready? As ready as we'll ever be. Okay. First question. Who was the first justice to leave the court? It must have been someone really early to go take a governorship or something. <laughs> they, they were all going on to bigger and better back then. Can I look at my phone? <laughs> <laughs> phone a friend. Um, I can give you a hint. He returned to the court. You know this one, Tiffany. Or at least you should. Okay. It was John Rutledge. He left in 1791. So he served for, I think, a year and a half. And then he later came back as the chief justice by recess appointment. But that was short-lived because the Senate rejected his nomination (laughs) by a vote of 14 to 10. Sad. Next question. Who was the first justice to retire rather than resign, which is what Rutledge did, or die? So retire and not die? (laughs) Retire and just retire. Retire from public life, retire from the court. Instead of angrily resigning like John Rutledge. I have no idea. Clearly I need to buff up on my retirement trivia. You know, I went deep into the bowels of Wikipedia uh, for this. So it was Samuel Nelson who was appointed by President I've never even heard of him. (laughs) I was going to say that. Oh, you, you got it. It was on the tip of your tongue. He served for 27 years and he retired in 1872. Okay, next question. In recent decades, most justices have left the office voluntarily. Since 1954, how many have died in office? Um, I'm going to say two. Maybe 
three. Bingo. Can you name any of them? I mean, uh, <laughs> Rehnquist. Okay. I feel like there was one recently. There was one recently, right? Oh, yeah. Justice Scalia. <laughs> That's what I was forgetting about. And then uh, the same seat as Justice Scalia. You know this. Robert Jackson. Oh. Okay. <laughs> the rest retired. Um, okay. So next up, who will replace Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, okay. The real question, who did Kennedy replace on the Supreme Court? <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. It was Justice Powell. That is right. He retired in 1987. And as we know, it, he was the third pick. He Yes, it took a while for President Reagan to get a successor for Powell confirmed. Okay, last question. What is the average length of a justice's tenure before they retire? Hmm. And this is looking at the whole history of the court. So it's it's lower than you'd think. Say like 25 years. Maybe 18. 16 years. So you're oh, really close. 16? But I think if you look at the modern court, uh. it I mean, it would have to be higher, like 25 yeah. or, or or higher. Well, these were pretty, pretty hard they questions. I think you ladies did a great job. And I want to thank our intern, Taylor Chaffetz, for helping research for Supreme Trivia this week. I would not like to thank that intern. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to our guest, Kimberly, and a happy retirement to both Tiffany Bates and Justice Anthony Kennedy. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.